Hi, everyone. Before we get to the show, I wanted to let you know about my new on-demand course for discovering and developing core values. On this podcast, I've chatted with many guests about the importance of incorporating core values in their life and career. High achievers will tell you it's the key to many of their accomplishments. I get asked a lot by readers of Friday Forward and Elevate about the best way to do this, and I haven't had an easy answer to date. This course is that way. The course walks you through a tested method to help you brainstorm, refine, and test a list of personal core values. The course can be completed in about an hour, but it will prompt plenty of reflection and work in the days, weeks, and months that follow. Start discovering the principles that matter most to you and get better alignment. You can learn more about the course at corevaluescourse.com. I hope you check it out at corevaluescourse.com. Now let's get to the episode. I think the idea of being plucked out of your community and sent somewhere else where you have to serve with people who don't look like you, don't think like you, don't love like you, don't pray like you, don't talk like you, don't act like you. I think that what we have lost in our country is the ability to empathize with people who are not like us. And because we can so easily create our own silos, we don't see people and understand what other people are going through. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Gina Raimondo. We have to slowly, carefully, and thoughtfully align our interests. Our guest today, Laura gassner Odding is an expert in helping others find alignment between their purpose and their work. She's a Washington Post bestselling author and keynote speaker who challenges readers and audiences to think beyond their limitations and discover their professional purpose. She has started and led multiple organizations and has authored two books, Mission Driven and Limitless. She has also delivered a TEDx talk, served on Hillary Clinton's National Finance Committee, and was a presidential appointee in Bill Clinton's White House. Laura, welcome. It's great to have you on the Elevate podcast. It's great to be here, Robert. So we were joking before that we are only we are doing this only a, a town away right now, but it feels like it, <laughs> in this current state of lockdown, it might as well be all the way around the world. I like to pretend that I'm in Indonesia. I'm just in Bali <laughs> right now, not not like three miles away. <laughs> Rather than a dark New England winter. Yes, it's so dark outside. Yeah, it's like 420. It gets dark these days. It's kind of depressing. So I always find it helpful to start at the beginning. Uh, it sounds like you had a unique background of getting your career started in politics. Can you share a little bit how you got into that field uh, early in your career? Well, I got into that career sort of by accident. I had always thought I was going to run for Senate. I thought I was going to be the first female Democratic senator from the great state of Florida, which, by the way, that job is still open. So, you know, get your act together, Florida. Um, but in order to become a senator, I thought the pathway was law school lawyers. They were the ones who were all elected to the Senate at that time. And I went to law school only to realize that I hated law school. I didn't want to be there. It was absolutely the wrong place for me. So I did what any good, confused young person does. I dated somebody who was totally awful for me. And this guy, I used to joke around, had exceptional taste in precisely two things. The first being girlfriends, obviously. And the second being unknown presidential hopefuls from tiny Southern states. And it had been uh, 
he, he offered to give me a ride home from campus uh, one day. I'd ridden my bike to campus and it was raining. And he was like, well, I'll just throw your car, your bike in the back of my IROC Z, which pretty much tells you everything you need to yeah. know about the guy. And we'll drive by this guy's campaign office on the way home. On the way, I'll just, we'll stop by because this is, you know, back over the internet. So if you wanted to find out about, you know, wh where somebody stood on issues, you had to go to a local campaign office and pick up some paper. So we walk into this tiny strip mall office in Gainesville, Florida. And in the corner is this tiny black and white TV with then Governor Bill Clinton giving this impassioned talk about how there's nothing wrong with America that can't be fixed with what's right with America. And he offered as a policy proposal service, community service in exchange for college tuition. And it was like, in that moment, my head exploded. And I was like, this needs to happen. And so I started volunteering on the campaign. Three weeks later, all four principals, Bill and Hillary and Alan Tipper Gore, came to visit this tiny town. And we got 36,000 people to show up at the rally. So the wow. national office took notice. And was like, who are those volunteers? And we all got offered jobs. And those jobs uh, meant that we got to drive around the southeast of the country in the back of a dirty, smelly van eating uh, ramen soup and cold pizza, which, by the way, was how we were paid in ramen soup and cold pizza. Yeah. And we threw campaign rallies. And I got to know people on the campaign trail who ended up um, being uh, hired onto the transition team. And then they told me about opportunities in the transition team. And so I went into the dean of the law school's office and I'm like, I'm moving to DC. And she said, that's the biggest mistake you'll ever make. And I went anyway. And the next thing you know, I'm working in the White House, helping to create the AmeriCorps program, which sends students to college on stipends that they earn through doing community service. So is that when it was created? I, maybe I just had the assumption that it was a much, uh, I thought it was around a lot longer than that. I mean, it's pretty old. Yeah, <laughs> I guess maybe I'm just older than I, maybe that I'm older. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. 1993 was uh, almost 30 years ago. Interesting. So tell, for those who don't know, how does AmeriCorps, so how does it work? Like, and what was the, was it really like, it was the manifestation of what he had pitched when you first, Saw him. Yes. Wow. Yes. So the idea is that there are a lot of needs in this country, and there are a lot of young people whose energy can be put towards solving those needs. And those needs were in uh, in the environment, in education, in healthcare, in community safety. I mean, they were sort of all across the board. So local organizations would apply for grant money, either from state offices or from the federal government. And with that money, they would train this core of volunteers, which became known as AmeriCorps volunteers. And AmeriCorps volunteers would work a certain number of hours a week, a month, um, over the course of a year. And in exchange for that, kind of like the GI Bill um, for service in the military, you would get this um, a stipend that could be used for college. And we, there have been over a million young people aged 18 to 24 who have served in AmeriCorps over the course of the last 26 years at this point. So I'm going to diverge for a second because I, I've been thinking about this question and debate. I never really get into politics or policy on here, but you seem to be the best person to ask this. So there's all this discussion about just forgiving student loan debt now, right? Just writing off ten dollars or $50,000. And I've, I've heard all the pro arguments and I've heard the against arguments. What was running through my head as I was hearing this debate is, how come we don't offer to do this in exchange for something like this, almost like the reverse? Like, do you have like thoughts on that? Because it seems like that made sense to me where it said, hey, serve your country, serve, you know, do something beyond yourself and we'll help you with your college. It's a very different discussion that's going on right now. 
So I haven't studied this uh, this issue in depth, so this is a sort of off the seat yeah. of my pants response. And and I'll say two things. The first is, and this is kind of a controversial statement, but I actually think that our country would be in a far better place if we resume the draft. And I don't just mean the military draft. I mean, one year of service to your country. So it's not just like, um, did you serve? Did you not serve? But the question became, where did you serve? Was it military? Was it Peace Corps? Was it AmeriCorps? Was it, you know, VISTA? Was it uh, uh, volunteer firefighting, serving in a school, like doing something? And further, I think the idea of being plucked out of your community and sent somewhere else where you have to serve with people who don't look like you, don't think like you, don't love like you, don't pray like you, don't talk like you, don't act like you. I think that what we have lost in our country is the ability to empathize with people who are not like us. And because we can so easily create our own silos, we don't see people and understand what other people are going through. And I think having some sort of compulsory service for a year as part of like a high school graduation requirement, I think would be, or, or a college graduation requirement, I think would be so useful for resuming the, the fusion of the fabric of this country. So that's sort of my general thinking on, on service. Whether or not we can do something like that as part of loan forgiveness, I think there are a lot of people who have taken out enormous loans who don't have the financial safety and security and privilege to be able to go and serve and, you know, then become a year behind in terms of career, in terms of career trajectory. And I think until we um, get employers on board to understand that the knowledge and the experience and the empathy and everything that you get from that year of service actually make you, makes you a better employee later, that those can sort of be years served, if you will. I think that's really important. So I think it has to come from not just, you know, forgiveness if people go and they do community service, but understanding that that's not going to set them back as well. Because for a lot of the people who have taken out these loans, they really can't afford that year. Yeah. It's interesting. I wonder in some cases if what they owe is more than they get paid in a year. <laughs> so might, I mean, it's, it, it, it is a huge burden. So what did you, switching back to AmeriCorps, like what did you learn helping to start that organization that sort of prepared you for entrepreneurship or kind of taught you about what that would involve? So I worked for a man by the name of Eli Siegel, and I actually um, dedicated my first book to him. And I, I learned a lot of things from Eli. He was a huge mentor in my life. But one of the things, well, there are three quick lessons. Um, the first is that you can do good and do well at the same time. So like yeah. all careers of service aren't necessarily just careers of sacrifice. There are ways where you can make money, have a career, have a, a life that feeds you and your family and allows you to have flexibility and freedom while actually doing careers that are of service, right? So it's not just the pathway of Mother Teresa. That's not the only way to do it, number one. Number two, that all progress comes from relationships. I used to watch him create relationships and networks with people who who didn't agree with him, who, who weren't necessarily on the same side, but he understood how to bring people together and to figure out what everybody needed out of the deal and then move everybody forward in that. And, and he was masterful at that. And that's the third lesson, uh, which is how he did it, which is that he, I thought when I went to work for him, and remember, I was all of 22 years old when I walked into yeah. the White House. I thought when I went to go work for him that a leader is a person who leads. They're the one who's out front leading. And it wasn't until I watched him in motion that I understood that leading can happen from anywhere. It can happen from the front. It can happen from the back. It can happen from the middle. Eli was a man who, whose 
whose name was not known by a lot of people. And yet when he passed away, there was a two page obituary in the New York Times for him. Uh, Ted Kennedy gave the obituary at his uh, or at the eulogy at his funeral. And there were a thousand people packed into the synagogue. And Ted said, Senator Kennedy said, there are a thousand of you here and every one of you considers yourself either Eli's best friend or his close friend. And let me tell you, all of you are right. No. That was the kind of relationship that he built, and he always made it about everyone else. And was he a career government person, or did he come from the private sector? He came from the private sector. So he he had gone to University of Michigan Law School. He was involved in politics very early on. He had um, helped run several presidential campaigns. In fact, he helped run uh, the McGovern campaign. And mm. when he helped run the McGovern campaign, he hired a man by the name of Arnie Miller, who was my next mentor, my next boss, and the man to whom, uh, for whom Limitless is dedicated. He hired Arnie Miller to run the state operations, and Arnie Miller hired a young couple named Hill and Bill, or, uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton to run Texas. So it's sort of how the whole like incestuous little world works. But no, he was always involved in politics as a hobby, but he was a businessman. He he would buy and sell businesses. His last business was Games Magazine, if you can remember, um, which you know was like one of those magazines you get, and it had like puzzles and crossword puzzles and you know word searches and all that. And then he had a catalog where it's like jigsaw puzzles and board games, and that was his business. And then one day, Bill Clinton called him up and it was like, Eli, I'm thinking about running. Would you run my campaign? And Eli's response was, well, remember President McGovern? I remember President Hart? I remember uh. President He's like, I don't have a good winning record. And Bill stood, but I, I believe in you. And, and he ran his campaign and the rest is history. Play the averages at some point. So what was your first role in, in the private sector? My first role in the private sector was to work for Arnie Miller. So okay. when the 96 campaign rolled around, I went into Eli's office and I said, all right, I'm ready to get back on the campaign trail. I'm all excited. And he looked at me in the way that only <sighs> a real father figure, mentor, mensch type can look at you. Yeah. And he said, well, Laura, you're kind of too old to get back on a campaign bus and eat cold pizza and <laughs> ramen soup. And you're kind of too young to be the domestic policy advisor. So why don't you go talk to my friend Arnie Miller? And he'll find you a job in the nonprofit sector. He runs the biggest search firm in the country that does specifically nonprofit work. You'll hide out there for four years, and then you'll come back and do something big on the Gore campaign. And I was like, great, that sounds smart. So three days later, I sit down with Arnie Miller uh, at a coffee shop, uh, the Willard Hotel, and he starts telling me all about, you know, executive search and what he does and the kinds of nonprofits that might want to hire me and that he works out of Boston. And I was like, wait a minute, Boston? The guy that I'm dating now, who, by the way, does not drive an IROC Z, uh, is about to move to Boston, and I should just come work for you, because I think he's the one. And Arnie said, yeah, absolutely, you should. And I was like, great. What the hell do you do? <laughs> that's how I became a headhunter. That was my first private sector job. Yeah, that's actually a logical connection. So what was what was different from working in government and then working in, in the private sector? Like, What did you notice off the bat? Oh, boy. Um, you know, obviously, there was a whole lot less red tape. There was a lot less like this is how we do things. And this yeah. is, you know, like the, there was a lot less um, of the sort of the diplomacy of like who sits where and who talks where, because the firm that I went to was was very small. There was like 10 people that worked there. So it was sort of a very flat operation. And yet at the same time, there were 
these sort of unspoken rules of diplomacy, right? Like there weren't assigned seats, but people had like favorite spots and there weren't, there wasn't an order of ranking, but certain people always spoke first in meetings, you know, it was like, there was kind of a way things went. And I had to learn that I I had, and unlike the government where they're like manuals out the wazoo, there was no manual about these unwritten rules that I I didn't quite get. And obviously, I mean, I think there's written rules and unwritten rules everywhere you are, but I was such a young peon in the White House that the unwritten rules didn't rely to, they didn't apply to me because I wasn't in the meetings. Like I wasn't in the important enough meetings where it actually mattered. Um, but I, for me, there were, there are more similarities than differences because the firm that I went to go work for was quite small and nimble. And the program that we were creating in the White House was so entrepreneurial. Um, We were creating within the government. We had to get so much more buy-in from so many people, which we didn't have to do in the private sector, but it still had that entrepreneurial feel to it. Like we were so naive and so young and we were I think that the legislation, as soon as Clinton was elected, right out of the gate was motor voter. And then we were the next. So we were like shot out like a cannon. We were like first hundred days promise. So, and the office was full of young people. I mean, so it just felt, and Eli was a private sector guy. So it felt very private sectory, even within the government. So I think there are probably more, more similarities and differences. Cold soup. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We move beyond the cold soup. All right. So now, so you've made the focus of your career uh, on purpose. Where did that transition happen? So we've gone from government, headhunting. How do you make this next pivot? Because this is not the typical progression path to someone doing what, what you're doing. Well, so interestingly enough, so I'm, I'm in government work. And then I go into headhunting. And if you think about it, politics is about putting the right people in the right place right? So they can change the world. And AmeriCorps service was about putting the right people in the right place so that they could change the world. Headhunting was about putting the right people in the right place so that they could change the world. So there's a theme that kind of works through my whole career. I was about four years into working at the firm for Arnie Miller when I had what I like to call a moment of rage. And I didn't know it was a moment of rage until several years later when I heard Margaret Heffernan uh, doing a book reading from her book, uh, How She Does It. And it was, Margaret had interviewed like 60 entrepreneurs who ran businesses that had everything from like a $100 million revenue line to a $100,000 revenue line. And she said that 201, what tied them all together was that they each had a moment of rage where there was a moment when they were like, I can do this better than this whoever, right? And I had that same, like I was sitting there listening to it and I was like, oh my God, I had that moment of rage. I'd never never been so clear to me. And I had this moment when I realized there's a different way to do executive search than the way that traditional firms do it. This traditional one third first year's cash compensation never sat right with me because the big, big, big deal searches, which by the way, are kind of easier to find candidates for than like the tiny, small, scrappy organizations. The big deal searches pay you more, the small ones don't. And I felt like we were incentivized to give only like the last 5% of our time to these tiny organizations that needed our help so much. And it just, it just sat wrong. And so I, I remember thinking that there was a better way to do this with more integrity and more authenticity and 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 more profits for the firm and less fees for our our clients and it just felt right and i marched into arnie's office and i was like hey and he was like there is the door this sounds like wait is you sure you're not just describing jerry Maguire? this sounds like the scene Seriously, in jerry Maguire. It, <laughs> 
<laughs> if I had had a fish, I would have walked out the door with my manifesto and my fish and Renee Zellweger would have followed me out. I mean, it was like my Jerry yeah. Maguire moment. I was just like, this is it. And he said to me, he was like, look, I, I think you're great. We would love to keep you do terrific work. Wonderful. But this is how we do it. And if you don't want to do it this way, then you should do it your way somewhere else. And, you know, Robert, there's that moment when you realize that you're, you think you're part of the solution and you have this crashing realization that you're not. And that only leaves you in one place, which is that you're part of the problem. Yeah. And I, that for me was untenable. So that's really where I think personal purpose started to become very clear for me. So like, clearly I've had a career that's had a lot of purpose throughout it, but that was the moment where I was like, you know, this is the work that I want to do. And so I founded my own firm doing this work that way. And I ran it for 15 years until five years ago when I sold it to the women who helped me build it. And the, there was a decision that I made very early on, which was that I was going to run the business to maximize impact in the world and to maximize personal freedom and flexibility in my own life, right? I had a six-week-old baby at the time. So like that was really important to me. And I wasn't running it to maximize profits. I knew that if I did good work, the profits would eventually follow. But I made the decisions for the firm. And I think any entrepreneur listening to the show, I would ask them that same question. Are you running your business to maximize impact, to maximize personal freedom and flexibility, or to maximize profit? And Robert, I'll give you two of the three. You can have two of the three. I was just going to add the mutual exclusive or this, you can only choose two out of three. They're not. So like, think yeah. about it. Think about the decisions that you've had to make running your business. If you've tried to make a decision based on all three, you can't. You, yeah. you, just, you can't split the baby. It's like speed, quality, and price, the same, the contractor exactly. matrix, right? Yeah. Exactly. So you can have two of the three, but you can have all three. And if you have a very specific idea of what actually matters to you, and you make decisions based on those two, you put those two first and foremost, frankly, the third will follow. And I can tell you, you know, 20 years later, we all made more money than we were making at the big firm. I sold the firm for more money than I would have if I'd had a career at the big firm. Like it all worked out in terms of getting the third, but we made decisions like our, you know, start with why, like our why was about impact. Our why was about being able to have the lifestyles that we wanted, being able to be with our family. And we sacrificed the profit here and there to do the other two things. So in terms of like my own personal purpose, I want to put the right people in the right places to make the world a better place. And the way that I did that was by creating a firm that employed the types of people who could be really good at maximizing on the first two and knowing that the third would come. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, 
Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. <coughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. So in your latest book, Limitless, love the title, by the way, you you really focus on helping others break self-limiting beliefs and ignoring some of the cultural forces that push them in the wrong direction. What are those forces that either push people down the wrong path or keep them on the path they just kind of know is not right? When you were eight years old, what do you think you were going to do? What do you think your job was going to be? Well, interesting that you say that because I thought I was going to be a lawyer because my dad was a lawyer. And and unlike you, I didn't make it to law school. I interned in two law firms and decided I did not want to be a lawyer. And when you just made that decision that you wanted to leave, how would you had your dad feel about it? Oh, my dad didn't care. I think it was more of like boyhood. He would have probably been like, don't be a lawyer. But it was more of like, <laughs> you know, wanting to be, you know, wanting to be like your dad. But I think a lot of us are in, in a place where they're told by their parents, you should be X, right? Yeah, or yeah. they make a decision and their parents are like, are you so sure? Is that going to be all right? Is that good? I think a lot of us have been handed scorecards about what a good life is, Absolutely. right? What a good job Get a good is job. Without, yeah. yeah. Right. But we never stop to think about what makes a good job good right? What makes a good job good? The value of a job is based on several things that your high school counselor, your college counselor, your parents, somebody handed you at some point, which said things like, does the leader inspire you? What's the mission of the organization? How prestigious is the brand? How many skills will you learn? What will it look like on your resume? What are the benefits like? How much money will you earn, right? Like what's the scope of impact? Those are the kinds of things that make a good job good. Those are the kinds of things by which we rate the value of a job. But nowhere in there does somebody say, hey, why put that list in order of priority to you so that you're making the good job good for you. You're making the job valuable for you. Because for some of us, the money is important, but maybe it's not the number one thing. For some of us, the money is important and it's the very number one thing. So, you know, I often say, when I'm on stage, I'll have, you know, an audience of a thousand people raise their hands to answer the question. And it's like, how many of you want to love to spend your weekends going to beautiful cosmopolitan cities on other continents where you're waking up, um, you're flying first class and you're waking up and you're having breakfast in bed over 800 thread count sheets. And, you know, half the audience raises their hand. And I'm like, and how many of you like to spend your weekends or weeks going deep into the woods or the forest or the canyons and hiking and waking up and having your your breakfast over a, a campfire with the birds and the bees and the bugs and the bears. And there's a right answer here. Right? And like half the audience raises their hand. And it's usually pretty evenly split. So if I were to say to you, Robert, I have a job for you, which is going to pay you 
five times as much as you're making right now, but it's only going to give you a couple of weeks vacation. But hey, you can take you know those Friday afternoons off and get on a plane and fly to Paris. Awesome if you're in the first camp because you don't need a ton of vacation, you don't need a lot of time, but you want a lot of money because you're fancy like me, right? <laughs> you yeah. want to go and have those fancy vacations. If you're in the in the second camp though, and you like to spend tons of time out in the wilderness, it doesn't cost a lot of money to get out there, but it costs a lot of time. Right. So you would look at a job that says five times as much money, but I don't get a lot of vacation. That sounds terrible for me. So each one of us is going to rate these jobs differently, but there's a society out there that says bigger, better, faster, more, bigger salary, better office, nicer car, fancier house. And it's forced us all into this, um, this idea that, you know, I call it like hustle porn, right? That like crush it, grind it, get up and go. And, and it's not the thing that's going to make us all super happy for some of us, you know, we want that life and that's great for some of us. Purpose means, you know, doing service, literally giving the shirt off your back to a kid in need. For some of us, your purpose might be helping cure cancer. Great. Those are wonderful things. But for some of us, your purpose might be being the first generation in your family to get out of debt so that your children can make different choices than you made. Fine. Maybe you're, you want to make tons of money and go on those fancy vacations, but maybe you'll donate a little bit of that back to that cancer charity. Your purpose might just be buying a Maserati in a beach house, right? Like everybody's purpose is different. And I think we get into this trap because we live in this world where people are purpose shaming one another, where it's like, if you're literally not giving you the shirt off your back to a poor kid in need, you're, you're a sellout. And the truth is your purpose is just your purpose. And the only who gets a vote on that is you, but we don't live in that world. We live in a world where people are like judging each other on that. And so I think this idea of what makes a job good gets skewed so early on, like before we even realize it's happening. And, and I think that's why so many of us end up in jobs that are not actually our career or our personal purpose. Uh, there's so much I, I could go with that. <laughs> um, I, I you touched on something that that I've talked about with a few people, and that I think you know, particularly you know, let's say where you and I live. Like I, I actually think the, I think the notion of wanting better for our kids has me, reached diminishing returns. And mm -hmm. I, if you grew up in a mine, you know, underground for minimum wage, working every day, I understand wanting better for your kids. But I think we probably see a lot of people where you know middle-class, upper-middle-class families have everything. And then this seem like, I want my kids to have more or better, which I actually just think has become destructive. And not only you see it on the career path and that, but look, we see it like in our towns on the soccer field where I, I just, to me, that's the worst manifestation of like, look, just because you are an average high school athlete and you wish you did more, like leave your kid alone. <laughs> they're, they're enjoying the soccer game. Like, it, yes. it, you know, it's just, it's crazy. The parental pressure from the sideline to try to excel in everything and not just enjoy it when you're nine or 10 years old and figure out if you like soccer, because I, I'm sure you'll agree with this. I think that, I think kids need to be pushed to try things because you do not know until you pick up an oboe that you might like it or so to push to try it. But at some point, if you don't love it, it's going to be hard to put in the work to become great at it. You know, I said to my husband very early on, my, my kids are 16 and 18 years old now. And I said to him very early on when we had friends that were like, oh, we have my kids on seven travel soccer teams and my kids, you know, doing the downhill ski racing, you know, trying out for state and whatever. And I remember looking at him and thinking, 
I'm so glad that our kids are absolutely average at everything. (laughs) (laughs) Because if you live in a place like we live, where there is you know, you 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 can't hit throw a stone without hitting somebody who's overeducated, over resourced, uh, you know, over neurotic, and who feels like if your kid doesn't get into Harvard, you're a failure as a parent. I the pressure that that puts yeah. on our children is so unhealthy for them, and so I I'm so grateful that my kids never showed early phenom promise in anything because I feel like it, it would have been so easy to fall into that path. Right. Like because there's nothing more frustrating as an adult than seeing somebody else wasting their potential. Right. Like when you're someone like you or me and we're in the line of work that we are, you see somebody who could be so much more. And you're like, I just want to shake you. Like, how come you're wasting this potential? Like, I wish I could do that thing. And you're not. And that makes me crazy. But then we try to do it to our children. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like That's it's abusive. It's the specialization at a young age. I mean, particularly in the sports, it's crazy. So I, I am decidedly, like you said, average. I didn't stand out at anything, but I can, there's a baseball game. I could play baseball, tennis match, play tennis, football, swim, ski. Like I can do everything decently well. And that's actually served me pretty well as a, an adult and, and socially. But, you know, you see these kids, um, like, again, going back to soccer, because uh, my boys play soccer, you know, this academy soccer is starting at age 11, where you commit to not play any other sports and just do this. Yeah, that's crazy. All year long. It's crazy. And it, and I think it's it's dangerous for a lot of a lot of reasons. I mean, I think I think that um, not learning how to be a generalist, not learning how to get uncomfortable, and to not know what you're doing, huh. I, I think that that's it's bad. That's a bad thing to not learn how to do. I think not having the baked in transitions, right? So like you're no longer Robert the soccer kid now. You're Robert the tennis player. You're not Robert the tennis player now. Maybe you're Robert the dancer. You're not Robert the yeah. dancer. You're Robert the mathlete, and you get to like kids get to reinvent themselves over and over again because they get introduced to new groups every year. But if you're in these same, these really incestuous groups of where you are expected to be like Robert, the soccer phenom, always, the minute you mess up, it's not a crushing, it's crushing in the only community you have. I mean, that's pretty dangerous. And you've so baked in, you've wrapped up identity in this, right. this pressure cooker environment. And so I, I do, I think that trying lots of different things, as you said, I mean, it, it helps you to figure out what you want to do. I think it's why, I think it's why it's important, you know, like it's what I talk about on Limitless, like every seven to 10 years, we should look at our lives and say, is the life I'm living still serving me? Like, I think another one of the reasons we get purpose wrong is that we think that people have a purpose. You have one purpose in life. And that's not true. At every age and at every life stage, you figure out new things about yourself. You learn, you grow, and the world changes. (laughs) When Limitless first came out, I did like 150 podcasts and there was one question that I would get, um, not that often, but enough that it used to make me crazy. And it was this question, what advice would you give your 22-year-old self? And I remember thinking, that's such a terrible question because even if I did know myself at 22 and like, you don't even have a frontal lobe then. So like- stock picks, buy Tesla, buy Apple. uh, Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I would tell myself. But like, if I would give myself advice about like who I should be in the world, even if I did know myself- the world around me has changed so much. Like, and I remember, I remember saying to one guy, I was like, you mean the advice that my, that I'd be listening to on a podcast that was recorded over the internet that I'm hearing on my cell phone? <laughs> 
none of those things existed. So how could I do that? Like, yes, doc tips would be the only thing. But I think if we don't allow ourselves the grace to reinvent and transition into a, you know, a new way to be a new life, new relationships, new jobs, new, like stretching our wings in different ways. I think we miss out on a lot of what life has to offer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, so you led me right into the next question because I'm sure you have a unique perspective on this, but the whole, how, how do you define passion or passions on this, you know, finding your passion versus discovering it? Is it this light bulb thing? It sounds like, is it multiple things? Does it change? Like what, I'm sure you have a very unique lens on this. Yeah, I have a very uh, <laughs> righteously indignant answer to this, which is that I, 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 I think that follow your passion is the world's worst advice. In fact, yeah. I, I often say that it's the spoken word illegitimate sister of the live, love, laugh tattoo. I just, I, it's terrible advice. And here's why. Because if you follow your passion, if that's the advice, you're following your passion, that tells you that as soon as you find your passion, all you have to do is follow it and everything's going to be hunky-dory, perfect, easy, peasy, lemon squeezy. And the minute something goes wrong, then you go, oh, well, it's not easy. It's not perfect. I guess this wasn't my passion. So you quit. And then you wallow around until you find the next thing. And then you follow that, expecting it's going to be great. And that's not how it works, right? Anything about which you are passionate deserves a lot of heartbreak, right? I mean, your passion is going to pick you up and throw you down and turn you inside out and have its way with you. It's going to bankrupt your your soul and maybe your bank account for a little while until you get it right. And it's the falling down and picking yourself up and falling down and picking yourself up, which is how you actually determine that it's your passion because that's the thing you want to fight for. And so I tell people all the time not to follow your passion, but to invest in your passion. Find something that excites you, that interests you, and then read everything you can about it. Talk to everyone you can about it. Write everything you can about it. Learn everything you can. Try, work, fail, get up, do it over and over again. And then if you're still going and you still love it, then it's your passion. And I think your passion deserves that anyway, right? I mean, if that's the thing you're really passionate about, you want to do it. And we see that all the time. The people who have these blinders on that they just, they so know who they want to be and what they want to do. And they're willing to like do that work. 
So I feel like follow your passion is just this like Instagram nonsense that we get from these, you know, girls in flower crowns that are staring at over Coachella and they're imploring us to follow our passion. And then we are like, we're wondering why it's not working out when what we're doing is taking advice from girls in flower crowns. Like, why do we think it's not working out? It, it occurs to me too. I think a lot of people think a passion is a what, and, and with more people I've seen, it's a how, right? Like, like mm-hmm. if you really have a passion for numbers, right? You could, there are a lot of ways within an organization, you could gravitate towards the type of work that you're passionate about. Like, I think some people who really want to give back have found, you know, that rather than quitting going to nonprofits, many of which are very dysfunctional organizations, even Mm -hmm. though they mean well, you know, they lead corporate giving for their for-profit company or they organize, you know, how that company is going to get, like, I, 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 people need to focus more on how, because then it's not, again, it's not this bullet of like, there is the perfect job or the perfect career or something out there that you might be in the wrong one. Cause that implies that you can't, you know, change the situation that you're in without having to uproot yourself over that fence. That seems where the grass is greener on the other side. Yeah. And, you know, it could also just be that your job is a means to an end. So maybe you're in a job where you make enormous amounts of money and you hate your job, but you're able to do great stuff with that enormous amount of money that you're making. And so that's worth it to you. Maybe you don't care that much about the actual job. You care about the contribution it makes to your life and the lifestyle and the the philanthropy that you have. Everybody's different, right? Some people don't care as much about the money, but they want to work for like a calling, a leader who inspires them, a business that they want to build. Some people, it's it's not, they don't necessarily care what the company does. They just want to feel like they matter. They just want to feel like they have connection to it. You know, throughout my book, I talk about this idea of consonance, which is when the what you do matches the who you are. And what I found 20 years of executive search is that I would interview people who were super successful in the work that they did, which is, of course, like why I was hired to call them. Right? Like my clients were asking me to call the most successful people and recruit them away. So I would call people who on paper were super duper successful, bold-faced names who were just crushing it where they were. But they would all take my calls because despite all that success, they weren't really all that happy. And I was fascinated by this chasm between the two because I was always sold a bill of goods that as long as you go get a good job, go get a job that's valuable, you'll be successful and then you'll be happy. And I also realized that throughout my career, there were these multiple moments where I was successful like when I was at that search firm, but I wasn't all that happy because it wasn't working the way that I thought it should work. And what I found was that there were only like a small handful of people who I interviewed who had both success and happiness. And what I came to understand is that those people had a thing I called consonance, which is when you're in alignment, when you're in flow. And Robert, you know those moments when the very best of what you do is being called upon to solve a problem at hand, a problem you actually care about. Yeah. And you're being rewarded for solving that problem in some way, financially, karmically, emotionally, that feels good, that's meaningful to you. Those are amazing moments. Those are the moments when you're in consonance. Those are the moments when what you do matches who you are. And those are the moments when you're limitless. So I know you would not tell a 20-year-old to go find their passion, but what would you tell someone earlier in their career who uh, doesn't feel very connected from a mission standpoint to what they're doing or driven, like how they should start thinking about making that shift? So I think the smartest thing that I did when I was 22 years old, and I did it completely by accident because that just happened to be where I was placed. So I can't take any credit for it, was that I ended up in a very menial admin job in 
uh, in Eli Siegel's office. So I ended up being the person who was booking all of his flights and doing, I, I did advance work, which basically meant like I was the young kid standing next to Eli, handing him the file that was like, here's when the car is picking you up. Here's where, what plane you're getting on. Here's the little, you know, paperclip of your airline tickets, right? Like I was the one who gave him like the binder and I would stand next to him at events when people would hand him stuff and I'd like catalog it. Like I was like, the, I was basically the body man, the roving secretary. I was the admin. I was a peon. Um, but it meant that I was in every room for every really interesting conversation, right? So like I yeah. told you the Jerry Maguire moment earlier, I can tell you the <laughs> Hamilton story now, right? This is like, I was in the room where it happened. And here's what I saw. I saw how the deals were made. I saw how relationships happened. I saw how um, arms were twisted. I saw how the sausage was made, right? Like I saw how it all worked and I was able to meet every one of those people. I was able to impress them. I was able to get to know them. I was able to have their contact information. I was able to um, be in positions where I was much more connected to the work that was going on and I was able to learn. It contributed to my life in ways that I was able to learn lessons that I could implement later so that when I ran into these people later on, I was able to, you know, have a conversation. It's like my book closes out with the story of former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew and why he came to work at AmeriCorps. And I never would have gone to meet him in the way that I did and be able to come up and be like, hey, Jack, can I write about you in my book? And he's like, sure, no problem. If I didn't get to know him 30 years earlier. So you never know where those relationships are going to go. So my advice to young people is that we're always told, like, try to get an impressive title, try to get an impressive job, try to get an impressive salary. And my advice is get the biggest job you can possibly get, which will probably be a pretty small job, but be really happy with that if you can get it in the highest possible office. So rather than being like the, you know, assistant to the assistant vice president in like some division in like Skokie, Illinois, sorry to any of your listeners in Skokie, Illinois, be an admin, be a peon in the CEO's office. Yeah, that is good advice. And that actually that leads nicely into my last question, which may be the opposite of that. But what's what's a personal and professional mistake that you've made, could be singular or repeated, that you learn the most from? <laughs> so this show was like four days long, right? <laughs> um, so I would say the mistake that it took me the longest to learn I had to unlearn being cheap. I wasted so much money being cheap. Personally, I would spend hours going from store to store to store to find the best price, right? I just didn't yeah. put any value on my time. Professionally, I would be doing my invoices at two o'clock in the morning. P.S., I'm not very good at math. So like, not only was it the wrong use of my time, they weren't even right. <laughs> Invoices with mistakes on them. And my clients would call me, they'd be like, those numbers don't add up. <laughs> Some of them would be like, we actually owe you more money. <laughs> they took pity on me. They knew it was, bad, it was wrong so often. Um, so I spent so much time trying to like do everything and not spend any money that I wasted money because the time that I could have spent you know, doing other things, like finding better opportunities, creating relationships, getting to know people, writing more copy, like putting together more offerings, like perfecting my messaging, practicing my talks, all of that stuff. I wasn't doing it because I was doing the stuff that I could have hired somebody else to do for less. So, you know, what is the, what do you charge for your time? And then anything that you can hire someone else to do that you're paying even a dollar less than that, do it, do it and learn how to delegate early, early, early. 
Yeah. I mean, the one thing that you didn't say about that I've experienced too, when you're cheap, like you're dealing with service providers or whatever, you end up redoing it later for so much. There's valuing your time and then there's just redoing it for more money later on if you don't do it right the first time. Absolutely. And I think especially if you have, you know, service providers who listen to this, I think the the other, I'll give you a bonus mistake if you want, which is that I, um, I, I used to price myself based on my price. And my price was, of course, like the most money I thought I could get away with, but the less least money my clients would be willing to pay, right? So it was like, yeah. it was a race to the bottom because there's always somebody who's willing to do the work cheaper. And it took me a really long time to learn the lesson that I needed to sell, not based on price, but based on value. What is the value of the solution that I'm bringing to my customers? And I didn't learn this lesson until the first time I came home from giving a speech my very first speech like five years ago. And I turned to my husband and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe they just paid me that much money for 45 minutes of work. And he looked at me with this look on his face that was like a cross between incredulity and and um, pity. <laughs> and he said, Laura, they paid you for 25 years and 45 minutes of work. And I was like, yeah. oh, and that's the difference because if I had priced that talk based on 45 minutes of my time, that's a whole lot lower of a fee than 25 years and 45 minutes of my time. Yeah, that, I, I have heard versions of that story that Picasso wanted. It is, it is so true. And pricing. Yeah, is, yeah, the 30 seconds on the napkin. Yes. Yeah. So it's. I think everyone everyone figures that out the the hard way. Well, Laura, thanks for stopping by. Uh, loved hearing your story and uh, hearing everything you had to share. And I, I, I know our listeners got a ton out of it. Next time over coffee. Yes, we will. Yes, when, when we can have coffee together, the world will hopefully be in a better place. So to our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Laura and her work and her books on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode with Laura, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review as it helps new users discover the content. If you're listening to Apple Podcasts, you can just select the library icon, click on Elevate, scroll down to the bottom, and leave your rating and review in just a few seconds. So thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast.
or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam, on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.